You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. The leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Christine Ostrowski. She is the Chief Financial Officer for Overbrook School for the Blind, serving over 200 students from ages 3 to 21 in the Philadelphia community and internationally. She's had a 30-year financial career half of which has been in the nonprofit educational world. And she's got an MBA from the LeBeau School of Business at Drexel University. Christine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Laura. I'm happy to be here. Christine, tell us now, before we get into the business world of things, tell us a little fun fact about you, something that would make people go, Christine, no way. I will. So I joined a dragon boat team here in Philadelphia. It's called the Schuylkill River Dragons. And people might know our rivers here for scholars, but we also have a large community of dragon boaters. So that's not a word we hear too often in these parts, at least digitally speaking. So for anybody out there who may be a little bit confused, what is a dragon boat? It's kind of like a really big canoe. It holds about 24 people in it. Oh my gosh. And it's all paddles go. So we there's <laughs> people sitting on both sides of the canoe also. So you sit side by side with each other. And it's really super fun to be out on the water and working in tandem with so many people on the boat. That's amazing. Is there actually a big dragon head on one end and a tail on the other? There is. There is a big dragon head on the front and someone's actually beating the drum while you're stroking uh, your paddle in the water. And there's a steer person on the end of the boat. Also. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. That sounds like a lot of fun. And remind me not to arm wrestle you because I'm thinking you're going <laughs> to cream me on that one. <laughs> well, I'm a newbie still. So <laughs> I might have a chance. I better get my chance and while I can. Yeah, that's awesome. So this is your first year or you said newbie. Well, my first year on the Scoop River Dragons, I was with the school district of Philadelphia. We had our own dragon boat team. Oh, wow. It's actually a team building sport. Corporations, the Philadelphia Police Department, teachers, different groups form these dragon boat teams. And it's just a very enjoyable team sport. I never thought at this age I'd still be able to like have any game or ability to compete. So I'm happy for the opportunity. What fun. What fun. And what a great opportunity to do team building, among other things, too. So tell us a little bit more now about the Overbrook School for the Blind. What's your 30-second elevator pitch? The Overbrook School for the Blind develops and delivers education that enhances the options available for persons with visual impairment and blindness to help them to have a more fulfilling life and greater opportunities. So I heard you specify, or I should say distinguish between those who are blind versus visually impaired. So it can be people with a range of we'll call it degree of blindness or or vision? Yes, most of our students uh, do have some vision. So some are completely blind, but a good portion of our students do have some vision. So just helping them navigate in the world and making sure they still have equal access to quality education and preparation for the world. That's exactly right. Beautiful. And in doing this now, what's your favorite part of your job and why? The favorite part of my job is the kids. So My job doesn't interact with the children frequently, 
But if I'm good at my job of bringing together the resources, listening to the educators, and they, it just translates to a better experience for the kids, making sure that we're staffed properly, funded properly, and just giving the teacher everything I can from behind the scenes makes it so much better educational experience for them. Sure. The more you manage the funds well, the more resources they have. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And do you get to interact with them at all? Do you get to see? Oh, yes. Their... I sit right here across from a, a classroom. Our campus is beautiful. It takes up two city blocks. Wow. It's historic. It was built in the late 1800s. And from three years old, they're teaching the kids mobility using their white canes around campus. So it's really nice that they get to walk. I see them frequently. As the kids get older, someone just came by the business office today to drop off timesheets and paperwork. And we're starting some social ventures because when the kids are between the ages of 18 and 21 years old, we're starting to get them out in the community with job training and job opportunities. So they'll even be on the getting a paycheck sometimes from us. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So they have some good work experience before they're uh, ready to set out into the world on their own. Yep. That's wonderful. Now, in doing all this, what's one of the big issues of the day? And how do you have to adjust your approach when you're personally talking to different key stakeholder groups about it? I think something that's impacting a lot of schools right now is staffing. There's, I think, you know, post-pandemic, a lot of people retired, the great migration, people moving to different regions throughout the United States, and staffing has become a challenge. So, you know, explaining that to mostly looking for new pipelines or new relationships to build a pipeline of staff members into the organization, rethinking how the staff classroom is structured because our students a lot of times require one-on-one support. Mm. So they'll have what we call an intervener or a para educator with them throughout the day. So there's a We have 180 students, as you said, but we have 250 staff members. There's a whole series of therapies that they get in addition to their classroom training. So who are some of the different groups that you have to discuss these staffing challenges with? And what are those different groups interested in that you have to recall? So the teachers themselves. So, you know, we're we're dealing with shortages or we haven't been able to refill a position that becomes a challenge, you know, like anyone who is feeling the pain of being short staffed. So reinforcing the fact that we are trying to find new staff members and, you know, looking to identify other resources like substitute services and contractors in the interim. So, you know, constantly trying to uplift morale to keep things going. The next level would be working directly with my management colleagues to identify, you know, what resources or how do we strategize to make sure that we're adequately staffed? What does it look like for enrollment projections is a big part of the working a a budget office in education. And lastly, would be our board of trustees, you know, very interested in holding us accountable to being properly staffed, managing dollars adequately. That's an interesting contrast, the notion of, of course, everybody wants accountability, but of course the trustees are going to prioritize that kind of letter of the law, whereas the notion of not just talking to the staff about the numbers so much as, but the morale challenges. Tell me a little bit about the morale issues and how you address them. 
So I really think that during COVID, there was like burnout across the board for a lot of people, but especially educators as well. They had to lift up what they would normally do in a classroom and take everything virtually. And it, it was just draining. And, you know, to come back to be on campus and try and almost press the reset button of what it's like to deliver that instruction back in the classroom with less people or things not exactly the way they were before is a challenge. Got it. Then with all the different audiences that you personally have to communicate with, who's the toughest audience you ever had to get through to? What was so difficult and what did it take to finally break through? I definitely think the most challenging audience I have to deal with, and it's been across multiple education institutions, is the board of directors or the school board of Philadelphia. A lot of times these are, well, they're always volunteers. They're not paid positions and they're passionate about education, but a lot of times they've worked in other industries. They don't necessarily know the nuts and bolts of running a school. And what are some of the things that are the biggest differences that they bring to the table that create a little bit more friction? It's good to have a diversity of perception and uh, perspective, I should say, and experience, background, et cetera. But when you're going from, I would imagine, a managing a corporate board to managing an educational board, there are probably some discrepancies that maybe nobody was anticipating or certain assumptions that are made. How, how do you what friction does that create and how did you break through at one point? I do think that sometimes timing, like the pace of how we can move things in mm. nonprofit, number one, but a school, number two, a lot of things that we do or initiatives that we have around campus are tied into the academic calendar for students. When students are on campus, when we have staff, because teachers only work 10 months out of the year. So I think the pace at which things could happen could be frustrating to trustees. The other thing is Overbrook School for the Blind is publicly funded. So we're one of four charter schools within the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania that receives state funding to run our program. And that comes with it complexities of funding and compliance on our part, along with the National Student Lunch Program. That if you don't work in this world of grant and government funding, sometimes is a challenge to understand. And how do you help them to onboard, so to speak, to when they are hitting those expectations and you're realizing, ah, okay, this is your corporate background. We know you mean well, but you're missing some stuff. How do you change your approach or your tact or or something to help bring them up to speed? I, a lot of times, I'm a big fan of the one pager. Okay. So whenever I can like bubble stuff up and put a pretty picture on it, maybe a little bow for the board member, I do that to the best of my ability. So I've come up with graphs, a lot of times using a metaphor, like a house or something that, you know, translates across all areas of business or individual experience, but really trying to summarize and have I like having that handout or something to go off of to kind of walk people through what exactly is transpiring. So some sort of graphic representation, a metaphorical piece to get everybody on board and, and understand what's the, the principle, sort of the level set. Mm-hmm. They're here. They know that their students here. They know that their teachers are here. So if I, you know, I try and 
meet them where they are with their knowledge regarding the school and kind of just layer on more information as we move forward. And that tends to get a little more consensus to move the boat, the dragon boat forward. More quickly. <laughs> it does. It does. Mm-hmm. Great. But what's an important lesson that you learned personally when you went from being an individual contributor to leading your first team? As an individual contributor, I think I was very focused on my completing my work and, you know, frustration with other departments. Uh, Maybe there was something I was waiting on or a deliverable or that was, you know, causing some delays or I couldn't get my numbers to the place that I wanted them to be. And, you know, that really switches as you become more of a leader of the organization. I work hard to try and appreciate across all levels of the organization, you know, what do we have in common with my coworkers and what challenges are they facing and how do we get through this together? And what is your role in helping them to do that? A lot of times people, I think, can be a little uh, afraid of finances. And, Mm. you know, I really try to speak in plain terms regarding the numbers in a way people can understand. So I try to avoid using language that I would with my auditors or other people in my accounting office and, you know, giving them information that is consumable to the role that they are playing in the organization. What's a tip that you can give people who are numbers people, who are financial or otherwise numbers people? to help translate numbers for those who might not self-identify as numbers people? I think whenever you have an opportunity to listen to somebody first and understand the challenges that they're going through, you know, something comes to mind immediately. And that is when I worked at Spark Philadelphia. We ran a cultural arts center there. And my art teacher, first off, it's an art teacher. So the teacher enough, you know, them wanting to be in their academic world, but then layer that artist component on top of it. You can imagine the last place she wanted to be was in the CFO's office talking about budget. But when I would start to talk with her about, well, you know, what are the projects that you want to do this year? What do you want to try to achieve with the students in your program? And got her talking about areas of her interest and her goals Then I was able to wrap into that, you know, how much it would cost to do that, where there was any constraints or opportunities as we worked together on the budget. But really kind of like turning the table and approaching the conversation as her being my client. How do I best serve my client in this situation? Beautiful. Well, it's time to challenge some clients here, specifically our listeners. This brings us, Christine, to the Listener 24-Hour Influence Challenge. This is your opportunity to speak directly to our audience and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? I'd love to challenge the listeners to volunteer. So I think volunteering, be it on a board of directors or an afternoon at a soup kitchen or anything that really speaks to you is an excellent opportunity to learn more about your community, build a network with other people, and find it very personally rewarding. There is something about volunteering and nothing else. Take a look, perhaps. What's what's the easiest way, or what's a recommendation that you can make that would be an easy first step to it? Because they may not be able to just you know, walk into a venue tomorrow and say, I'm here. What do I do? I actually learned that you can even digitally volunteer. Really? And there's a website that makes it easy for you. It's called volunteermatch.org. 
And wherever your areas of interest are or by region, you can do a Google search and use the search engine on volunteermatch.org to find volunteer opportunities. I love that. So if you know that you're good at, for example, helping with finances or taxes or something along those lines versus you want to do arts and crafts or you want to work with animals or you want to work with kids or whatever it happens to be that that'll help you find a place in your region or organizations that uh, you could reach out to on that on that inquiry. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. What a great resource, volunteermatch.org. All right, everybody, go hit the uh, volunteermatch.org and see what comes up. Now, what's a communication-related mistake that you've made along the way? Laura, I think sometimes I have a tendency to maybe omit some things from my communication. I might have... Uh, <laughs> thought deeply about it or been in the weeds about a particular topic and maybe reached out with a question or given some advice to move in a particular direction. And I probably should have elaborated more or give more of a reason why. And I hate to admit this part, but sometimes I should pause and really work on that relationship again too. You know, like, how's your day going? It's, you know, I look forward to seeing you again instead of like, hey, can you give me those numbers by Friday? <laughs> right, right, right to the uh, right to the heart of the matter. It's not personal, it's just business. Yeah, but personal, I think means a lot. And, and I've really learned that over the, especially leading some major projects, you know, that relationship and that trust that you build in your coworkers really brings a lot of value. To what you're trying to accomplish. Can you recall a time maybe early on when uh, you learned that lesson a little bit more explicitly? I would probably go back again to when I was an individual contributor, when you asked me earlier mm -hmm. about attempting to get things done that were really important to me and in my finance world, as opposed to having more of that global perspective of one of the people that comes to mind in particular was my director of marketing. So I was working at Drexel University at the time, and we were really tasked with a global expansion of online learning. So we went from being a regional university when we started to deliver online learning to, you know, just becoming more of a national presence. And we were even enrolling uh, students from other countries. And I was really focused on like delivering the financials and I have to have these analytics and why can't I get what I want from the marketing people? But when I pulled back away from that and started to think about the challenges he was faced with and what we were trying to do as an organization in a whole, my personal priorities for getting my tasks completed become less and less. And what we were trying to achieve as an organization became more and more. Was there a particular conversation that you had with that person that really sticks in your memory? Uh, Laura, I think you'll love this. The <laughs> conversation was more with being executive coached. So I've had an executive coach for, I guess, about 10 to 12 years now. Mm. And her really like asking me those probing questions of why and why do you think, you know, that occurred? Or what do you think he is showing up thinking to those meetings? You know, that really helped to shape how I hold those conversations and I think really establish a more meaningful back and forth in, um, I'll call it a level three conversation. I also read the book, uh, Conversational Intelligence. So by when you're having a more meaningful conversation, you're going to achieve more in that, in that conversation. 
And that book, again, for those out there who might be curious, is called Conversational Intelligence. Conversational Intelligence. I really enjoyed it because it gets into the neuroscience of the communication and how our brains are, where we have our interest peaked in the conversation and where, when we're meeting those meaningful dialogues. Everybody, you can take a look and see. Maybe it's available on Audible as well as as paperback or something else. We'll double check in. We'll... It is because I'm a fan of Audible. There we go. <laughs> there we go. So it's been confirmed. And we will, of course, put that link in the show notes for everybody out there. Conversational Intelligence. Do you know who the author is off the top of your head? I remember Judah. Okay. I'm, sure. <laughs> I'm not the best with names. I'm much more of a number person. It makes sense. Then at least we know you're in the right place. That's <laughs> terrific. But we got the title. So conversational intelligence, always good to share really valuable resources like that. And that sounds like it's a good one. So let's talk about speaking of conversations, crucial conversations come along every now and then when we are facing an intelligent, uh, intelligibility, oh my goodness, an accountability issue. So what's an approach that you have used when you've had to address an accountability issue with someone on your team? I was facing an accountability issue when I worked at an organization that we had to send bills in once a month for our funding. And what was transpiring was there was not consistency there. You know, was a what I was observing as a disruption and things not getting done on time. I was concerned. So I, I spoke with the person that was doing that work. And I did what I call a discovery meeting. So I just tried to learn more about the process. Where is this originating? How does it get to us? You know, how is it submitted? What's the timing of it? So really like a a baseline of gathering more information. And then I come to find out that the reason it was running late was because she was waiting until it was perfect. And I was like, aha, this is a person that really cares about the job that they do. And if I teach her how to understand the impact of her work and kind of broaden her horizon, I can get this going to a different place. And we did just that. We actually collaborated together. We deployed new processes that changed the entire organization and resulted in her getting a promotion. But at the end of the day, I really wanted to have a good understanding of why it was occurring, let her know that she was appreciated and valued. And that were, there was opportunities for promotion if we could get her kind of looking up and, and moving more in a direction that was going to serve the management decision making. And is now I'm, I'm guessing here, but would it have been helpful for her, even in her good intentions of trying to do the best job possible to make something perfect upon realizing that this was not going to be complete to that standard by the initial deadline? to well in advance have that conversation with you, kind of projecting what was happening and discussing options, discussing what might need to give, trying to negotiate a slightly longer deadline, but one way or another to initiate that conversation ahead of time and get ahead of it. Was was that part of the counseling or was there better different kind of advice? Yes, I, I definitely agree on that. You know, I did in my role as CFO set the, the timing of it. So setting the expectation that it's more important to have it completed and submitted then be absolutely perfect. We can go back and correct little bits that are remaining afterwards, but, you know, setting the timing and the expectation to be alerted that there's any potential issues that could be disruptive to the process. Sure. When in doubt, get ahead of it. That's, I think, a pretty universal truth for 
well, universally. <laughs> I think another important part of that, though, Laura, is her understanding that it was I don't think she really understood that it was that much of a problem, too. So understanding like the larger impact of what this one process meant to all other areas of the organization was was really important. Sometimes I think you train people to perform a series of steps or work in a specific area. And I'm always trying to broaden the horizon of my team so they understand that the work they're performing and how it impacts the other departments and the overarching health of the organization is important. I think it's such an important point, Christine, that the larger the organization you work in, the easier it is to feel like a cog, the easier it is to kind of forget that you're part of a much larger ecosystem and that submitting these numbers or submitting whatever the report is, et cetera, does have a ripple effect. And it, without that piece, there's a lot of uh, logjam that ends up happening. It impacts many, many other people's lives, the ripple effect. And how do you, what's a piece of advice that you can give to organizations to help keep that from happening? Because I would imagine that a lot of people really do get lost in that feeling like, is what I'm doing making a difference? Does it matter? So I did happen to work for a very large organization. I was deputy CFO for the school district of Philadelphia. So altogether, it's a $5 billion organization. Mm. the eighth largest school district in the United States. And we were tasked with a huge challenge of modernizing systems there. And there is a saying, it's called WIPM. Yes. W, you know WIPM? Oh, yeah. But tell everybody. What's in it for me? So, you know, that was communication is key. I think people understanding where you're heading and communicating early and often is really important in trying to lead a workforce. Even if it's just your day-to-day leadership or leading to a new place, it would be that much more important. And people understanding what is in it for them. So will this bring efficiency to their work? Is there some mundane task that they had to complete before that's going to be automated? And then a lot of times in the sector that I work in, nonprofit and education specifically, People are mission-driven that work in these organizations. They're doing it, and I do it because I feel good about trying to create a better tomorrow for the students that come through our education systems. And the same thing for new teachers or new faculty or new staff members that will come through. If we make systems better today, then we're we're paving the way for the generation that's going to come behind us. So it sounds like that's really a two-way street insofar as it's important on the one hand when you're trying to to implement a new system to which nobody likes new systems new nope, learning boring. curves <laughs> yes learning curves just mean outside of the comfort zone means slowing things down temporarily at least etc and so trying to help people understand not just why you need them to do it but why it's in their best interest to make these changes but also on the flip side, helping them to understand how what they are doing is in the best interest of others as well, where they're really understanding the synergy of the relationship between the individual and the organization. And I think that's it is something that sounds kind of cliche to say it like that, but I'm getting the sense that there's an awful lot of people who really do need to hear both messages quite explicitly. We assume they know it and maybe they don't. Also, I think people really, uh, it's important for them to hear it. Like you literally have to tell them, I appreciate you. You deliver value here. You're meaningful to this institution. And I don't know that that gets said enough, you know, the the appreciation. 
And what would you say to somebody who's like, oh, that's kind of touchy-feely. I'm not really a fluffy, touchy-feely, mushy kind of person. I think there's easier ways to do it. Like a, a simple, quick touch point. Like, hey, you showing up on time for the meeting today really made that meeting run well. Thanks so much for that. I think there's kind of low-hanging fruit to make an observation of, you know, how that person is making a difference in their work environment on a regular basis. Don't need to take them out to dinner, but sending them a Slack message of some sort, just saying, hey, thanks for X. Great job. Right. Makes a difference to them. I do think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. So see, there are easy ways out there. It doesn't have to be huge. The token acknowledgement, and I don't mean token in, in the sense of perfunctory or just checking the box, but simple as is enough sometimes. It's just the fact of being acknowledged. Well, it's very easy. Just we we mentioned earlier about like business as usual. It's just very, you know, they did their job. You just keep on chugging along. But I think that little extra, hey, I, I noticed this or you did this and, and I appreciate you. Now I'm getting to uh, jump to a culture question because I think we've we've been touching on that. So let's just jump right in. As Peter Drucker famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. What's one communication pattern that has been used by a team that you've been part of that's had a huge impact on the culture of the organization for better or for worse? I could probably say for worse. Okay. And that maybe it's an example of what not to do. Perfect. So I have received feedback in different organizations that sometimes the senior leadership team, which I happen to be part of, is disconnected from um, what's happening with the day-to-day employees. So I think making sure that those conversations are making their way across the workforce and that you're continuing to stay in tune with your staff and that they have a knowledge and understanding of where you're heading. Because it's easy, I think, to get in your thought bubble of your, you know, your CEO your CFO, your COO, you're having conversations at this top level, but sometimes think your staff and your employees that are grinding away are disconnected from those conversations and where things are heading. They're left wondering why. So the <laughs> lack of transparency, a lack of uh, trickle down as far as information is concerned, it's all sort of stays up in the top ranks and leaves everybody else wondering. Uh, yes. And I don't think it's intentional. But I think you need to lead with intent that people understand where things are heading and it's communicated and there's transparency. Because once you get people on your team or in your dragon boat, Laura, they're going to be there to paddle with you. And to be successful, you need them there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So more communication is better than less. Yes. Perfect. Well, Christine, this has been so much fun talking to you today. Thank you for sharing so much information about the Overbrook School for the Blind, about dragon boats, about all sorts of combinations of topics that I never would have guessed would be paired on on an interview show, which is terrific. (laughs) Tell us, how can people learn more about you and the Overbrook School for the Blind? They can visit our website. It's obsoverbrookschool.org, obs.org. And you can learn lots of our programs and how we impact our community. Wonderful. Thank you again. It's been really lovely to talk to you today. Thank you, Laura. And for everybody else out there, thank you, as always, for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite platform of choice so we can help even more people to increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And of course, if you want to download my free guide for equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, 
go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.